The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, I'm Darren Fonda, Managing Editor for Barron's. Welcome to Barron's Live, Managing Your Money. Today, we're talking to Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist of BMO Capital Markets. Brian provides strategic investment advice to institutional and private clients and sets targets for U.S. and Canadian stock markets at BMO, which runs $7 billion of equity portfolios. He's worked on Wall Street for 34 years, including senior strategy and research roles at Oppenheimer, Merrill Lynch, and Piper Jaffray. Thanks for being here, Brian. Thanks so much for having us. We appreciate it. Brian, you're one of the more bullish strategists on Wall Street. Um, you have a year-end target, I believe, of 4,300 on the S&P 500. I think that would be around 5% up from where we are now and put the market up more than 10% for the year. Um, w- what makes you confident that the market can get there? Well, a couple of things. Uh, first off, the broader theme of what we'd like to call normalization, we think has begun. And actually, we, we think it started really the second half of 2022. Uh, And then when the market hit those lows again in October, which we believe um, are the lows and signified the start of a new bull cycle, part of a longer term 20 to 25 year secular bull market that we think um, began in 2009, by the way. Um, We believe this path to normalization includes kind of high single digit to low double digit historical average performance for the stock market driven by high single digit earnings, a a range, I'm sorry, of interest rates with respect to the 10 year treasury, either between three and four, four and five, don't know what it is yet. Uh, But I think from a capital perspective, and when you're pricing things out, it's going to be more important that you see a stable range and normalization of rates relative to an actual number. I think people are too fixated on numbers. Speaking of numbers, you go back into GDP in a tight range of two to 3%. Um, And then finally, from a, from a valuation perspective, um, we're not going to hit that recession multiple that everybody thinks we are, uh, but kind of mid, mid to high, high teens uh, type of multiple which we believe in in an environment that's going to give you high single digit earnings growth is an attractive, stable growth environment that we think investors around the world are going to come back and buy U.S. equities. So I think you have um, you're you're estimating two hundred and twenty five dollars for earnings for the S&P 500 this year, um, which would put the multiple at around 18 times. Is that above or below kind of the street average? It's actually 220 is the number, and it's above the average uh, multiple uh, that that the street has, and our street strategists are continue to to lower their numbers. We've seen a, a double digit decrease in first quarter numbers in terms of what's happened the last 30 to 60 days in terms of analysts dropping their numbers for first quarter year over year growth, whereas the second half of the year we're still looking for. I think it's high nine percent growth on a year-over-year basis for the fourth quarter, something like six percent. 
for the third quarter. So the majority of analysts on Wall Street are looking for an earnings rebound in the second half um, of the year. So our number last year was 230. Our number this year is 220 in terms of our, our of our base case, which is again 220 and 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 um, 400. Uh, I'm sorry, 4300 on the on the on the S&P 500. When we do our targets, Darren, for years, we've done bull bear and, and base case. So our base case, you know, given the fact that we are viewed as, as bulls on Wall Street, less than 5% upside from here isn't necessarily jump up and down bullish. I think it's more about being, being consistent in being more positive in an increasingly negative uh, mantra on, on the street. Yeah, I mean that, that that's a that's a great point, and I think the big concern is uh, obviously inflation, um, whether it's going to moderate as expected or um, maybe faster, um, and uh, you know what the Fed is going to do. And the markets have been very responsive to Fed policy over the last uh, six to eight, twelve months, as the Fed has raised from around zero percent to r- roughly five percent. Um, I think the market is pricing in at least a quarter point increase, um, one quarter, one more quarter point increase in May, possibly one or two more. Um, and and I think it's it's still a big question of uh, you know where Fed funds policy will wind up. And there have been a lot of expectations that the Fed would cut um, in the latter half of the year um, due to um, either a recession um, arising um, or late in 2023 or early in 2024. Um, but we're not, we aren't seeing any signs really of of a of a hard landing, um, and it's debatable whether we're heading to a soft landing. Do you think that um, monetary policy is going to be what continues to kind of drive this market um, into the second half? I think so, uh, because uh, this has really been uh, what people have been focusing on for all intents and purposes in terms of monetary policy. Um, in in let's call it the binary type of um, focus on monetary policy, which has really kept the market's um, control since really 2007. So let's kind of go back. The Fed opened the window in August of 2007, and then that that essentially became uh, quantitative easing. And then obviously we had the credit crisis, what people like to call the great financial crisis. Um, And then obviously we had this big move in markets, which which we became very bullish at. I've never seen anybody more bearish in my career than, than let's call it uh, February, March of, of 2009. Some of that was a sentiment low, but also we think some of the prognostications that people were putting forward in terms of looking at the economy and the stock market in 2009 were so feared late, not too dissimilar to what we saw in March of 2020. Now we come back into this notion that the Fed is wrong. The Fed's going to overstay its welcome. The Fed was late. We kind of already know that, um, but I, I guess the key thing, um, it goes back to this normalization um, word. A lot of people liked it to use it. We started using it kind of mid-year last year. And, you know, if you take a look at from a historical perspective, the average 10-year treasury um, is 5%, including the, the uh, great financial crisis. If you take that out, it's 7%. And... You know, the sticky parts of inflation is what I think the Fed is trying to break, uh, that being rents and things like that. And we're already seeing, seeing those things begin to roll over. We, not unlike the Fed, thought this would roll over a little bit faster. I think the trends are in place. It's just not happening 
happening, I'm sorry, as fast as everybody thought. That's kind of number one. Number two, uh, BMO has learned, and I think Brian Belsky has learned, that uh, rates aren't going back to zero. Uh, Newsflash. Um, but I think we have reared an entire generation of investors that think you can only buy stocks if interest rates go down. And we've done a tremendous amount of work really since um, the credit crisis of 2009, trying to talk to talk to clients on the institutional side that stocks can go up and interest rates go up. And remember, interest rates did go up um, following the credit crisis as, as um, uh, the Fed and the economy stabilized and interest rates, I'm sorry, stabilized. Now we're into this zone where I still think, Darren, we're dealing with, with massive amounts of PTSD uh, from COVID and going to zero interest rates and, and the pumping of money, both on a monetary and fiscal policy basis that we think that we just we were operating like that was going to go on forever. And obviously, common sense that it wasn't. So now we've had to overreact on the other side. And so whether or not the Fed cuts rates um, the second half of the year, um, I think the bond market's kind of telling you that that's what's going to happen. And we saw this reaction to what happened with the banks and 10-year treasuries and in two years actually uh, went down. Now we've kind of seen calmer heads prevail. And that's had an effect on what's happened with technology stocks here in near term. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about the market direction and the like. But what all of this means, all of this volatility and all of this indecision, and I think it just points investors toward owning quality, owning stability. Uh, and, I, and I still believe that U.S. equity is our, are the most stable asset in the world. And oh, by the way, several companies in Canada are not too far behind either. We think the fundamental volatility in emerging markets, uh, we think fundamental volatility in Europe, uh, they've had great years last year, principally because of, of what's happened with, with currencies and with, with their own interest rate uh, situation. But I think that money is going to come back to the U.S. the next few years, especially as the U.S. Um, continues to show and, and, and demonstrate stable fundamentals coming out of this normalization process. All right. Well, you packed a lot in there, um, some of which I would <laughs> like to unpack. Um, and I do want to talk about the banks and I do want to get to um, some of your strategy or investment theme ideas that you like right now. I'd also like to remind listeners um, to uh, submit a question if you like. Um, we will get to a few of those for Brian um, in a little bit. I, I do want to talk for a little bit more um, about the macro um, and just succinctly, do you think that um, for stocks to rally into the year end, we will need to see the Fed pause after its um, May meeting. And or do you think we will need to see what the market is anticipating, which is a cut or two towards the end of the year? I think it's less about the cut and, and more about what the inflation data that they're looking at, whether or not CPI, PPI, or PCE. If we start to see that. Uh, accelerate to the downside, that will really dictate what the market's going to do and what the Fed's going to do. I think um, this notion of the Fed has to cut for markets to go up. I think people are are too focused on that. Yeah. I mean, the Fed has always, you know, Powell has always said he's data uh, dependent and, uh, you know, obviously they pay extraordinarily close attention to every inflation and employment and wage growth reading that's out there. So, you know, I think it's still a, an open question and nobody knows the answer to that. Um, but um, it is quite possible, as you point out, that we could see a rally if rates uh, just stabilize, at least here, 
um, and and don't go significantly higher based on um, inflation and other data. Right. And that's, um, okay. and that's okay, Darren, just real quickly, because I think we've become so binary in our direction. Like it, we don't have to see rates go down and we don't have to see rates go up. What about if rates just stabilize? And again, that goes back to the normalization kind of stabilization theme that I think many investors are missing. Yeah, but it's not, it's, it's not just about the rates, right? It's about the availability of credit. Um, it's about the availability of lending. It's about the health of the consumer. Um, and that brings us to the banks. <laughs> And um, we've seen a lot of trouble um, at the banks lately, uh, the regionals um, and the mid caps, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature um, collapsing, a lot of uh, trouble at First Republic, which is still alive. Um, but you know, I think the question now um, is, are we gonna see a credit crunch? Are we gonna see constraints in lending due to the fact that so many banks have lost billions of dollars in deposits um, to money market funds as rates have gone up. Um, that is going to increase their funding costs uh, and it could make them pull back on lending and credit. Do you think that is a, a headwind? Um, and is that something um, that could actually also influence monetary policy and, and broader economic growth? Yeah, so we would say this, um, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, all banks aren't, aren't created equally. And I think it's it's this binary notion that just go sell the banks because everyone's already decided there's gonna be a credit crunch. And I think that's too short-sighted. I think we're focusing on the negative in terms of what happened in 2008, 2009. Um, the credit crisis that we saw is very different than, than what could happen right now. So here's some common sense. There's 4,200 banks in the United States of America, 4,200. 600 of which are publicly traded. We're talking about two banks. Um, we're not talking about contagion or systemic risk. Um, <clears throat> we're also, from a common sense perspective, we think the opposite's gonna happen that occurred following the credit crisis. So what, what was that? And this also pertains to the credit side of things. So you're talking about the biggest banks, some of the biggest banks in the world, Bank of America, JP Morgan, Citigroup, even Wells, um, that have, uh, have learned and demonstrated uh, an, an immense amount of capital discipline, especially relative to 2007, 2008, 2009. <clears throat> That's number one. What happened in, in during the credit crisis, and I was at Merrill Lynch at the time, you had massive flows out of the big institutions and into the small institutions, and you had a lot of small mutual savings banks actually become public to take advantage of this. So nobody wanted to be at a big bank, didn't matter if you had your savings account there or your commercial bank lending, uh, or your institutional money with respect to investing. So I think the opposite is going to happen this time around. The small banks uh, are going to lose to the big banks, and the credit facility is wide open. These balance sheets are very strong. Their loan portfolios um, are, are, let's say, very clean relative to, to the credit crisis. So I think the, the, the short-sightedness and the binary negativity that is, is centering financials only are... are arbitrarily selling these banks without fundamental merit. That's number one. So I think the big banks are going to win. Number two, I think there is going to be massive consolidation between within the small bid and the regional banks because of this notion of scale, which has been our theme all along in, in looking at financials. And then number three, with respect to the potential for increased regulation, we think the regulation side of things is going to be more pointed towards small mid banks. So. Right now, in the last couple, three days, 
any all anybody wants to talk about with respect to our institutional clients is the credit credit crunch credit crunch credit crunch but if you go back and look and do the work with respect to those big banks the credit is available and that's why the big banks are going to win coming out of this yeah i, I think that i don't think there's a lot of concern about the health of the big banks um partly because they've also had to increase capital ratios and buffers significantly and they face stress tests and a whole host of um, you know rules and regulations to make them more stable and able to withstand uh, you know an economic crisis and also the impact that higher rates has had on their bond holdings, which has hit the smaller banks um, and the mid-sized banks a lot harder. Um, but I think there is concern that uh, you know a lot of specialized uh, lending, a lot of commercial and local lending, doesn't go through the big banks. It goes through the small and the mid-sized banks. Uh, the regional banks, um, and those are the ones that are seeing the deposit outflows. But uh, I suppose that's a question for another day or another topic. Or um, what, what one thing I wanted to ask you about is the market again, kind of getting back to that and the S and P five hundred and what's fueled the gains this year. Um, it, it, it's largely been tech, um, Apple, Microsoft, uh, Nvidia, Tesla. They have accounted for the lion's share, if not almost all, of the gains in the market. So we're not seeing tremendous breadth right now. Is that a concern um, that so much of the market is being lifted on the shoulders of these tech giants? And will we need to see um, you know, bigger gains in other sectors and more breadth in other sectors um, for the market to, to rally really in a healthy way? Well, it's been the tale of two tech sectors so far year to date, Darren. So if you take a look at the at January, it was really the stuff that was beaten up the most last year. So there was a lot of tax loss selling that that came back in. And then we went into uh, a lot of the stocks that were the we, meaning the market, went into um, a lot of the tech names that were beaten up, including NVIDIA and Tesla. Tesla, by the way, is a consumer discretionary name, not a tech name. So if you're looking at, at, the, at the contribution of performance with respect to that name, and then January, February, actually, financials uh, and value stocks were doing quite well. But then when, when uh, the news of the two banks uh, came through, uh, the market uh, and investors sought liquidity. And what does that mean? They, they sought the largest names in the market because they wanted to, quote unquote, maybe rent them and see where the most stable areas were because of, of liquidity. And what are the largest companies in the marketplace? Well, you named them, Apple, Microsoft maybe Google, those types of names again. So I think I think it's prudent uh, to maintain a, a more neutral stance in, in technology, which we have been for the last couple, three years. But I think going forward, um, it is troublesome. And we were we were quite negative in the beginning of the year in terms of this, this market rally can't last with the kind of participation that we've seen. It doesn't mean that we can't go up to the 4,300 number because I think that number is, is a pretty sound number. But I think going forward, what we see from our work is that dispersion remains very high, meaning the standard deviation of, of returns is very high, meaning it's all over the place. But so too are valuations and earnings. So that means we would advise um, our institutional and our private wealth clients to not buy ETFs, especially indexing ETFs, the broader the ETF, I think the worst, but more concentrated ETFs, or better yet, stock portfolios and, and individual stocks would be more concentrated because let's say in technology for every NVIDIA that you own, you want to match it up with a Qualcomm. So a higher multiple name with a lower multiple name, that type of investing within tech. So are you neutral on tech in general? 
We are. We've been neutral for a while on tech, uh, just because first off in 2021, because the multiples got too expensive last year because uh, of, the, of the weakness that we saw. And we've been neutral across all of our portfolios, except our small mid cap portfolio, which takes a look at a, a three to five year uh, basis. We are overweight communication services, which which uh, the Google machine and the Netflix machine are in that are not technically technology names they are in that sector. We think that sector affords opportunities in both growth and value. And that's why we're overweight. Okay. And so let's talk a little bit more um, about other sectors um, that you like and, or favor now and those that you don't. Um, what are your top three sectors and your bottom three? Communication services, uh, financials and healthcare, we think uh, financials is by far the, the best value pick at these names. And again, to that, these, at these levels, I'm sorry, obviously excessively contrarian now, but you're not going out and buying an ETF. You're buying concentrated names within the money center banks, uh, the broker dealers and the asset managers because of our theme of scale. Communication services because of the three C's, you need cash content and consolidation. And we think that those are going to be major themes in healthcare um is a garp sector to us they have both growth and value side of things we like the product companies that keep you alive but we also like names that pay big dividends because i think dividend income and uh, equity income i'm sorry is going to be a very important theme the two sectors that were technically underweight are staples and utilities i think the market sometimes is hypocritical they don't like technology stocks and they blame the technology sector for being expensive but the two most expensive sectors in the market are staples and utilities and I think investors have made binary decisions there to just buy those sectors because they're quote unquote defensive, but they're not defensive anymore. And in fact, technology is actually more staple alike than the consumer staple sector where multiples are at or near multi-decade high. Same thing for utilities. So I think the, I think the high valuations reflect um, concerns that we will head into a slowdown in the recession. And those are defensive sectors that would do relatively well um, if the market and or economy um, starts to weaken, but you're arguing that uh, the valuations just make them unappealing, um, even if even if we do head into a slowdown? Correct. Okay. Um, and you mentioned dividend or equity income. Uh, I think uh, the idea of dividends is quite popular, obviously, for income investors. There's a lot more competition um, on the bond side now. Uh, you can get around 5% um, in a six-month treasury or in a money market fund. Uh, so where do you go for dividends in the stock market um, where you're being compensated for the equity risk? It's a great question. You know, those strategies along with value massively outperformed last year. They're underperforming this year. The three strategies that we run are still positive but underperforming. Um, but our view on, on equity income is this, Darren, that, that the higher the yield with respect to equities, you don't want to own those names. You actually want to buy the names that are growing the dividend over time. Our work shows through back testing and all the names that we've owned for years is you always want to buy names that, that are kind of the dividend aristocrats that have never cut a dividend through a time series of years, whether that's 10 years or 20 years, but have cash flow yields above the dividend yield. That's important, dividend yields above the market. And you want cash flow yields above the dividend yield so they're able to facilitate the dividend uh, over time, plus that they make money. We want to buy companies that make money, pay dividends, and have great cash flow uh, and able to, to grow the yield. And so in that space, you have financials, you have technology, believe it or not. 
You've got a lot of healthcare names. You have some industrials uh, and not a lot of utilities because uh, they're not able to grow the dividend as much as some other areas. So those, those strategies over time um, have significantly outperformed the market in both bad times and good times. And what about real estate? You haven't talked about real estate. That's traditionally viewed as an uh, equity income sector. Um, are you uh, positive or bullish on real estate? We're, yeah, it, we are neutral REITs uh, relative to um, utilities. Now, our work shows that REITs typically and historically do better in a rising rate environment uh, than, than utilities. And what we found is I think a lot of the REITs uh, took on some water last year because of the worries about the consumer and worries about technology. But we actually like some thematic uh, ideas within REITs, uh, especially within the technology REITs and the industrial REITs. I think some of the commercial REITs have been unjustly hurt here. I think as more and more people go back to work, and oh, by the way, if and when bond yields begin to roll over, that's going to be a positive for a lot of these commercial real estate REITs and some of the some of the uh, bigger consumer REITs. So we especially like the more thematic REITs within industrials and technology. All right, let's take a question uh, from Steve. Um, he says, uh, Brian, you mentioned your year-end target for the S&P 500. Do you have a target for the NASDAQ? Uh, it seems like tech stocks are overvalued. So curious to see what you think about tech, whether they're set for a correction versus other sectors. Uh, thanks, Steve, for the question. We do not maintain targets on the NASDAQ or the Dow, uh, principally because our our clients on the institutional side use the S&P 500 to, to benchmark their portfolios against. Uh, there are parts of technology that are clearly um, um, overpriced with respect to valuation, uh, but there's also areas within technology that have massive cash flow and is sustainable over earnings remains very strong. And I think it's really important, Steve, that you don't uh, paint the brush over all of tech or even let's say semiconductors because the semiconductor space um, is, is, is following its traditional stripes of being very volatile in terms of price performance, earnings and valuation. So uh, you have to get in there and look at the stocks. Unfortunately, it's going to take a little bit more work, but just be careful uh, with making statements that technologies, um, let's say, overvalued. There's several areas within tech that are actually quite attractive from a valuation cash and income perspective. All right, let's take another question uh, from Mark, who says he's thinking of returning to Canada for retirement. What's the <laughs> outlook for the Canadian economy and dollar over the next five to 10 years? Well, Canada welcomes you, Mark. Uh, you know, I'm up there all the time. That's where, uh, that's where the corporate headquarters are for BMO. I, I, I toggle between uh, Toronto and uh, New York. You know, the tax side of things is really the biggest uh, downfall uh, with respect to their the housing prices are probably going to stabilize in the next year to remember um, the Bank of Canada typically um, it, uh, incorporates a monetary policy first, meaning they, they make a change. They raise rates first. It looks like there's they've uh, um, uh, stopped first and they'll probably cut first in Canada. Remember, the, the, the GDP of Canada is equivalent to the state of Texas. And so <clears throat> I think the loonie, which is the, which is the currency, the Canadian dollar, obviously had a rougher year last year. Um, but going forward, you know, we, we think as Canada goes, I'm sorry, as America goes, so goes Canada, especially given 
the, the close proximity in the traditional trading partners. But there are a lot of great companies in Canada. I think people uh, are missing not just the banks, not just the energy companies and the gold companies. But I think the loony in particular, Mark, has a great opportunity, not in the next five years, but five years after that, kind of five years from now, is when we start to see signs of global synchronized growth kind of get together, that's when Canada really gels. So I think there's an opportunity for doll, Canadian dollar strength five years out from now. And so I think uh, better times are ahead for the, for the dollar. But Canada still is, is, I think, tied to the United States with respect to its economy. Well, it, it's, it's also tied to global commodity and energy markets. Um, and, you know, that, that, that has been a positive tailwind uh, for the Canadian economy and for Canadian equities for some time. Uh, and I don't, know, I don't know, does that have to continue um, to be a tailwind for the Canadian stock market? Well, we run a portfolio called anything but, but the big three. Um, and obviously last year, it, it underperformed what's the big three in Canada, are financials, uh, energy, and materials. Energy had an amazing year last year. Uh, and Canada uh, did its job in terms of outperforming the U.S. and local currency. This year, it's underperforming. Why? Because it's not a diversified index. Um, and, but we've seen the other sectors in Canada, the eight other sectors, do quite well, including technology and consumer land and some of the some of the industrial stocks. So for for Canada, because of its concentrated nature, for it to outperform in in long stretches, Darren, it definitely needs both sides of the commodity, meaning hard and soft, it needs CRV metals and oil to work. And unfortunately, we're not seeing that this year. We didn't see it last year because metals went down. And we didn't see it the prior year because energy was down and metals were up. So when you have those two markets together, meaning CRV metals and com um, soft commodities, meaning oil and natural gas go up, that's really where we see this global synchronized growth when, when emerging markets massively outperform the U.S. and other developed markets. And I think we're still three to five years away from that. All right, we'll take one more question. Paul says, do you have thoughts on the muni market? I don't. I'm an equity person. Um, we we let we kind of stay in our lane at BMO and let the fixed income strategies handle that. All right. Um, well, if you don't have any thoughts on bonds, um, maybe we can talk a little bit more um, about equities. Um, Gabriel asks: uh, Shipping stocks and companies have been forgotten by the market since shipping rates kind of come down heavily. Some still have good yields. Um, is anything on this sector that particularly attracts you? Shipping like barges and things like that, or um, yeah, I think like sh I think uh, shipping container companies, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, we haven't done. We don't own any of those names, so we don't have a particular um, comment on that. However, we do think the theme of onshoring is a major theme, and so we would be pivoting uh, more toward uh, the FedExes and the riders and the. Uh, in the rails instead, you know, rails obviously had a little bit of a tougher year because of some extemporaneous circumstances, but we do think um, North America in particular, so Canada, Mexico, U.S. will do that will do quite well, and and the rails are going to be a big part of that. So maybe um, maybe pivot away from the the, the those types of names to more the, the rails and more the domestic side of shippers. All right. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. Thanks for being here, Brian. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow. Market Watch reporter Jessica Hall will be joined by uh, Doris Meister. 
uh, CEO and chairman of Wilmington Trust, uh, to talk about financial planning and retirement savings advice. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.